Father, this is your world, and we want to declare praise and thanks to you. In all of its fallenness, in, with all of our foibles and all of our faults, you are still the, the maker of all things. And so we rejoice. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world or in our hearts today. This is our Father's world. And so speak, speak, Lord, and we will listen. In the name of Jesus, amen. Got reading some stories this week about what people have found in their houses after they've purchased them. These are, I don't know what you call a house that, it's a used house, a second-hand house, a house that you did not build yourself. You bought it from somebody, they've lived in it, Right? And so people are telling stories, crazy, cool stories in some cases. One couple tells after two years of living in their home, they're finally cleaning the little dust, pun, little dust bunnies, the little stardust that lands up on the top of the kitchen cabinet. They're cleaning those kitchen cabinets, and they find a wedding ring. So they contact the realtor from two years ago, and she puts them in touch with the previous owners, and they, they are just overjoyed, crying their eyes out that the ring that they had lost years ago had been found. Not so nice story. <laughs> it was a family that was experiencing some uh, uh, some floorboard creaks in a in a house that was just creaky when you stepped in that place, and so they decided to pull the floorboards up. And underneath the floorboards, they found they didn't know what they saw at first, but they called in the experts. They found a World War II explosive. I tell you, I'd walk a little softer in the house after that. Just everywhere I go, no, don't stomp your feet. Another couple was frustrated after they moved into their, the house they purchased and found that the previous owners had left the old piano. Who, who wants to be responsible for someone else's old piano? Well, they thought, let's just dust this thing off, call in the, the piano guys and see how much they'll charge us to haul this thing out of our house. So they dusted it off and called the piano guys. Guys show up and they... Yeah, the question is, how much is it going to cost us to haul this out of our house? Oh, the piano guy said, it's not going to cost you anything. In fact, we'll pay you $10,000 if you'll let us take this piano. Apparently, it was more than just an old piano. Another couple frustrated after they moved into their new home, and the, back, the plumbing in the back of the toilet began to leak. Well, who? Come on, we just bought this place. Now it's already leaking. So they begin to take apart the plumbing in the back of the, behind the toilet, rather, to f find where the problem is, and they discover that the previous owner had not believed in banks and had stored $14,000 in cash behind the toilet. So these are the stories. What you find when you buy a house, right? It makes you want to go home and kind of poke around a little bit. Here's the question. Here's the question. If somebody were to poke around our lives, what would they find? If they were to dissect us, but not dissect us in the high school biology way where they got the frog on the little poke pin thing and you're pulling its guts out, but like dissect us in emotional and spiritual ways where they see everything hidden in our lives, would they find an unexpected treasure? Would they find something valuable? and beautiful. Leave that question hanging on, on your mind as we jump into the teaching today. We're going to Acts chapter 2. We're, we're going to go to Acts, and here's why. We have titled this series Church Drift, but it's titled after the book Mission Drift by Peter Greer and Chris Horst, who wrote about Mission Drift. And here's what they put on there. Uh, here's how they lead into their research and into their work. I'll put their words on the screen for you. Without careful attention, faith-based organizations like schools and churches and charity organizations will inevitably drift from their founding mission. That is, anything that was founded with a faith-based uh, concept will inevitably drift unless there's careful attention. That goes for schools and churches and charity organizations, hospitals that are faith-based. They're saying it will happen to every one of us unless we give it careful attention. Keep reading. 
If we continue, they said, to apologize for our faith through these organizations, through churches and schools, if we continue to apologize for our faith, conceal its importance or, or dumb it down. We don't conceal, ah, come on, we don't conceal it in our schools or our churches or our organizations. We don't conceal it, we just dumb it down a little bit. Hey, it's not, not that important, right? They're saying if we conceal its importance and drift from our core, we will lose the very uniqueness our world so desperately needs. What the world needs is a church, a school, a faith-based organization, a, charity organi- a faith-based charity organization that says we are unique in what we're going to offer. And we know why we were founded. We know what is at our core. We will not apologize for our faith. We will not conceal its importance. We recognize that Jesus Christ makes a difference. And we will serve with that. Dr. Ben Sells, he's, I've quoted him. As a matter of fact, I quoted him with this exact line. He's the VP of Advancement at Taylor University. He's sharing with Peter Greer and Chris Horst. He says, hey, if there is ever a time, our challenge going forward in any organization, in any faith-based organization, is to be more true to who we are than we've ever been before. Not to look back at the last leader, the last generation of, of who led our movement. What were, what were the seniors last year? No, no, no. It's not about what happened last year. It's going back to our core and saying we want to be more faithful and more diligent, more radical for why we were established than ever before. So who are we as faith-based organizations? And by the way, I'm not just talking in the corporate, set, in the, in the corporate sense. We're talking in the personal sense. You, you are a faith-based organization, you and I, as Christians, we say we have a different worldview. So what is our, our worldview? What is important to us? What is at our core? This is what comes in Acts chapter 2. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sling some real quick by you. I'll throw them on the screen and we'll just sling them by like a Like eating an apple fritter. You just got to salivate on it. Just salivate on these passages as so we run them by the early church. Now, this is the early, this is early, early. This is like the church just starting. This isn't generations later. This is the, this is the beginning of the beginning. All right, Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Fellow Israelites, they're proclaiming, listen to this. What are they proclaiming? What's the big news? What is the big announcement? Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know. What's the the big deal? Jesus Christ. This Jesus of Nazareth. He's the big deal. You listen, fellow Israel. Come on, community. We've got something to say. Not everybody there was was even searching for Jesus. But, But the early church said, we've got one thing to say to the world. Listen to this. Acts chapter 2, verse 29, just a few verses later. Fellow Israelites, picks it back up. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David, he talks about it. Patriarch David is asleep in the tomb. But he, he believed in the resurrection of the Messiah. David, what was David's theme? This Messiah. That's what the early church believed, that even the patriarch David, he was consumed with this theme of the Messiah. How about Acts chapter 2, verse 37? They just heard a sermon, and so they respond. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? What should we do? Peter replied, This is what you must do, because this is what we're all about. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the one thing that we are about. Acts chapter 3 starting in verse 12, and then we'll just jump down to verse 16. When Peter saw this, he said to them, it is the name, it is, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. This is after the healing of the lame man. Completely healed him, as you can all see. What, what is just being over and over and over? Every time Peter and the other apostles are lift, opening their mouths, what is coming out is but a proclamation of Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, Acts chapter 5, verse 42, kind of concludes this, this conversation with this. Now, this is, this is my favorite verse, Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. I'll put it on the screen for you. Day after day, day after day, just an, almost annoyingly, you kind of hear the, kind of the annoyingly so, day after day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. When they got together, 
And they did get together. They ate together. They played together. They, they talked about Jesus. Hey, how, how's your journey with Jesus? They were talking about Jesus. Day after, oh, you just hear kind of Dr. Luke, the, the day after day, house after house. You couldn't go anywhere but hear these people talking about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we have, so don't, don't get all thinking I'm making a point here. But Jesus wasn't just part of their Bible class. He was part of the math class, the English class, the history class. He was everything they did. They talked about him in every class, in every way, day after day. That was their theme. What can we conclude about the core of Christianity? What was the core of the movement that we call our own? What's the core? I think the core was, is, is summarized in that Gaither song. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. That was their theme day after day, home after home. That's what they talked about. That's their mission. Oh, Peter Greer and Chris Horse in their book, Mission Drift, would say, could it be that faith-based institutions and organizations have drifted from this? We've got to return to a radical commitment to this. Oh, because there's a thousand other noises and directions pulling us as individuals, as organizations, as a school, as a campus, as a community. There's a thousand other voices. Hey, this is what you ought to speak up about. This is what you ought to say. And while they do deserve some merit, the day after day, the home after home, there was one thing they talked about. Oh, I'm telling you. You say, that was easy for them, you know. They didn't have to deal with the culture and the context. And we would, I mean, we live in a difficult culture and context. Now, maybe do a little reading on the, on the culture and context of the Roman Empire. And then come back and say they had it easy and we had it hard. We have it hard. Oh, no, they didn't have it easy. The Roman context was not, not all of that easy. There was politics, there was entertainment, there was a culture there that was not conducive to be Christian. And for a while, you couldn't even say so. In discussing this and the early church in Acts chapter 2, Philip Yancey in his book, his well-written book from years ago, The Jesus I Never Knew, talks about this was what they had to wrestle with. The early church didn't have it easy. They had to wrestle with it too. But in, in this, I'll put his words on the screen, the politics of Rome were virtually irrelevant to the kingdom of God. It was the politics, you can insert anything there. The entertainment of Rome, the culture of Rome, the context of Rome, the politics, it was all irrelevant. He goes on to argue that we, we speak of the church and faith-based organizations needing to be relevant to culture when it is culture that is judged by the church and by faith-based organizations. We have turned it around and said, no, we've got to be relevant to them. And I'm not speaking that we need to you hear this in the context. But Philip Yancey argues, wait a minute, who judges who in this relationship? And he, he speaks of it in this, in this expression. He says, we must escape, or they had to escape the political captivity. They had to escape it. How did they escape it? By going back to who they knew they were organized by. We've got one, one purpose. Hey, that's, that's nice over there. That agenda, that, that conversation is great, but we are about one thing. I got another book just... Uh, well, it's been months and months, but uh, recommended to me by our friend, our dear friend, Don Reader. He's listening to a book. He says, hey, you've got to pick it up. So I've listened to it, and, and then I got it to be able to read, read it. It's by Tim Keller, a bright mind, uh, suffering tragically from cancer, uh, possibly terminal. But he, he's put together this, it's a little book, I don't know, 70, 70 or 80 pages, uh, called How to Reach the West Again. He says, man, they, they, the church came together in a, in a difficult time. It wasn't easy for them. It wasn't, it's not easy for us. He said, the church pressed together. 
So they were going to be about one thing. They got their commands from Jesus. We're not taking our marching orders from anybody else. All the other noise is silenced. We're going to be an audience for only one. And they tuned in to Jesus and said, we will do whatever he does for the world, or whatever he did, we will do. And so Tim Keller outlines five areas that they came into direct contrast with culture. I'll put it on the screen for you. These are his five. First of all, the, the early church became multiracial and multi-ethnic. That was not, that was not the in thing. You were part of, of groups and societies and rankings and establishments. And each culture, each ethnicity had their own gods. And so you wouldn't cross. But Christianity came up and said, hey, there's a God of heaven and earth. There's one God and we can all be a part of it. And, and so this group, this, this God supersedes your local ethnicity. We become one worldwide family. It blew the doors off of culture because culture was saying, no, 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 you got the God you were born with. Christianity said, no, 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 there's a God of heaven. And so the church began, and, which is why in, in early Acts, you, you have this, this, this gift of tongues, and that's absolutely astonishing to the, to the people because they're saying, no, 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 you can't have different languages listening. They can't all believe in the same. They've got their own gods. Secondly, they were highly committed to the poor. Now, Roman culture was, was gracious to the poor. They took care of their poor as long as they were your own family. You didn't take care of somebody else's poor. That's like, uh, that's like washing somebody else's dishes or doing something. in the, you, you let people wash their own dishes in their house. You, you take care of your own poor. But you don't just open the gates to, without, without prejudice, we will serve you. This was, this was contra the, the, the culture. In fact, the emperor Julian, pagan, as you know, famously remarked that the radical Christian practice of caring not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, was both offensive and, offensive and attractive. It offended him, but it attracted him. Thirdly, they were non-retaliatory. They, were, they extended forgiveness. This... This, this wasn't what they were used to. As Christians were dragged into coliseums and were killed for entertainment, they would often be killed while praying for their persecutors. And this just boggled and scrambled the minds of the culture. Fourthly, they were strongly against abortion and infanticide. Christians were dead set against both abortion and infanticide. This was not nearly, just merely in principle. But they found and took in infants who were thrown out to die or become harvested by slavers. People would have to get rid of, get rid of the infants. It's not convenient. Slavers would say, ah, we'll, we'll raise them, we'll raise them, we'll take them. So the early church became just one that recognized the human value of every soul and the poor and the infants. And fifthly, they revolutionized the, se the sex ethic. This was, there was a certain level of commitment, but, but for the Roman culture, this intimacy, to try to keep from repeating, this intimacy was an appetite. And every man could be satisfied. If you were a man in the Roman Empire, you, of course, you had a spouse or spouses, but then you could also engage in this activity with anybody of social class, equal or lower. The women, only with their husband. But as a man, you could do it. And the Christians came on this scene and said, no, 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 this is not a, 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 a guy versus gal thing. This is not a man and woman thing. This is a sacred gift given to us by the God of heaven. And it is to be one of, of, of faithfulness. And it revolutionized, it revolutionized this this question because women were, were degraded and you, you are but a thing. And you have to, no, 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 your husbands, you, you, no, 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 stop it. What, what Tim Keller drives at here and what, 
what Philip Yancey supports as well, is that the church, the faith-based community, is not a, because if you look at these, if you look at this list, the first two, multiracial, highly committed to the poor, that makes the church sound very blue. The last two, strongly against abortion, revolutionizing the sex ethic, make it sound red. The middle one, the marked with forgiveness, that doesn't sound like anybody today. There's nobody that does that. But in the political scene, the first two sound very blue, the last two sound very red. But what Tim Keller and, and Philip Yancey are arguing for here is saying, based on the example of Acts, there is not a, the church, the faith-based organizations are not something that embraces everybody. We're kind of a mix of everybody. That's not at all what they're trying to say. Instead, faith-based organizations, the church and the schools and other organizations are a total separate identity because the kingdom of heaven is not just a combination of the two options, but a third separate option altogether. The kingdom of God is not subject to the nations of this world. One British theologian, Newbigin, notes how the Western, Western culture has, the Western church rather, has been made captive by the gods, little g, of secular culture. But different branches of people pursue different idols, and as a result, every part of the agenda above will attract anger or opposition from one part of the church. Some of us tilt this way, and some of us lean that way. The church was not meant to tilt to either, but to be a third and separate kingdom on this planet. We are not blue and we are not red. We are not half in between or any mix. We are the kingdom of heaven. And that's the message that Jesus kept driving. I'm going to establish my kingdom. It's not going to be connected to your nations. It's a separate kingdom. And it influences and impacts those, yes. And so we serve as Christians. We serve by making a difference. That's the theme, by the way, of every graduation. You don't ever go to a graduation and, and hear the speaker get up and talk to the graduates all dressed in their regalia. Hey, go out and fit in, folks. Go out and fit in. No, the theme of every graduation is go out and change the world. Make a difference. Don't be part of the norm, but go and be different for the sake of God. It was, Philip Yancey says, it was that. It was in the name of Jesus, and I'll put it, put it on the screen for you. It was in the name of Jesus that St. Francis kissed the beggar and took off his robes. Mother Teresa founded the home for the dying. Wilberforce freed the slaves. General Booth established an urban army of salvation, and Dorothy Day fed the hungry. That's why they did it, though, in the name of Jesus. It's not that we are not to serve the world, but we are to do it without prejudice and giving and emptying ourselves. How did they do it, though? How did they do it? How were they so consumed with this? How can we be so consumed? I want to say that there's only one answer. If you know Jesus you will live for Jesus. You cannot meet Jesus and stay the same. And so I wrestled with, how do, we, how do we keep from being influenced by culture and politics and our context and our friends and entertainment? How do we keep, how do we keep our focus and be relentless, recklessly relentless on what God has called us to do? In my prayer, the answer came back this week. Michael, everyone must know Jesus. If you know Jesus, you will live for Jesus. So I want to make you an offer. I want to, I want to challenge you. There is a book that is the best out there. And, and beloved, I, I, I try to do my, my fair share of the reading. I try to plow through as many books as I can. But there's only one that rises to the top outside of Scripture that I would say is the classic, the best when it comes to introducing personally me again to Jesus. It's entitled Steps to Christ.
It is the best book out there on how to know Jesus on a personal level. It covers the topics of repentance and confession and faith and acceptance and growing in Christ and prayer. It, it is the best. If you haven't read it or it's been a day since you've read it, and I don't mean that in the, in the symbolic sense. If it has been more than a day since you've read it, I would challenge you to read it again. In fact, I was so consumed by it. I've read it uh, dozens of times. It, it lines up along with several other, other classics like by Andrew Murray and other authors from Christianity. But this book, Steps to Christ, is so incredibly valuable to meeting Jesus I am willing to, right now, if you're watching online from wherever you're watching, as long as the uh, postal carrier can come, I am willing to offer sending it to you in the mail. It comes online as well, so we can send you a link. We're going to put up a connect number on the screen. If you text that number or use the connect card in the pew back in front of you and you just write, hey, I want that book, Steps to Christ, so I can read it, read it again. You text this number, 970-279-3432. You text it or use that QR code, and I'll send you the book. We'll send it to you in the mail, or we'll send you the link where you can read it online. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm talking to these young whippersnappers up here. But here's who I'm talking to. I'm talking to the leaders who have been in the Christian church for decades, who say, no, 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 I've, I know Jesus. Come on, I've been there, been there, done that. I'm ready to get to the big stuff. This is the big stuff. And some of us have forgotten this. And I was brought to my own point of decision this week. And I said, Jesus, I need to meet you again because I have been lost in what is the big stuff. And so this morning, I began again reading this book. I'm three chapters, so I'm a little bit ahead of you. Three chapters in this morning already. I'm telling you, it changed my heart even today. If you haven't read it in a day, I want to challenge you. If there's 13 chapters. You can read a chapter a day, 13 days, you're done with it. But you text me. You fill out a connect card, wherever you're at, we'll get it to you. And that goes for you guys. You guys just say the word. You come over here and say, hey, I want a copy. We'll make sure you get one. Oh, beloved, because we can, we, can, we can look around the world and say the world needs to know Jesus, but what the world needs is for us to know Jesus. If we know Jesus, the world will be changed. Through our churches, our schools, and our organizations it will know you know this whole idea of, of knowing Jesus this the gift of eternal life John chapter 17 and verse 3 says now this is eternal life that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have whom he has sent to know him is eternal life but to know him does not begin in heaven this is an invitation that we can begin eternal life here eternal life I want to put uh, Ty Gibson his book an endless falling in love Read through that this past week as well. Eternal life is something we take to heaven with us, not something we get when this life is over. This is something we start here by knowing Jesus. We take it with us. We don't wait. We start it today. And that's what the world needs. That's what the world is desperate for. Jesus himself said, I am the one way. I am the one way. There's no other way. I'm just it. You get me? It's the who. If we filter everything through the who, the what will fall into its right place. Are there strings attached to what the church does, what the schools do, what our faith-based organizations in the community? Absolutely. There are strings for every meal we offer. There are strings for every housing opportunity we provide because we are not in the business solely of taking homeless and making them in, and giving them homes or the helpless and giving them help or the hungry and giving them food. We are in the business of taking the hopeless and giving them hope. That's why we exist. All right. Got one story and I'm done. I've, I've for, for, for a long time uh, known the story and appreciated the story of Bart Millard. Bart Millard's lead singer of the band Mercy Me from a few years ago. He's, uh, he, they had that breakout moment where they, he wrote the song, I Can Only Imagine, back in 1999 it was released, and it became a big deal, a sensation, and Mercy Me, who nobody had heard of before that, just merged onto the scene, and it was fantastic, and their band, Mercy Me, grew into popularity. I didn't realize that there was a book, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going through the library this weekend, ooh, there's a book 
about his life. And it's a fantastic book. I'll put a picture of, of Bart Millard on the screen and his wife, Shannon. They, uh, the book is fantastic because Shannon Millard also offers, she, she writes part of it. She gives her perspective along the way. So you're seeing both him and her as, as they kind of grew up together and, uh, and into their, their life together. But Bart is sharing in the book, at the end of the book, the kind of the final chapter, two chapters, he says, you know, it's not, since, since we've had this breakout moment and we're popular and we, we have all these opportunities, it, it hasn't just been easy. He said, I lost my way. I forgot what I was about in 2014. He said, that year became a pivotal year for my life. I want to I just read for you his story. He said, in 2004, in January of 2004, late one night, Chris, Shannon's brother, his wife, showed up at their door in Greenville where they lived. He had just had his heart broken in a relationship, and he was distraught. Shannon had been his champion no matter what, and she had been supported and believed in him, and so he had come to talk to her and to pour out his broken heart. They talked for hours into the middle of the night, and at some point, he started, Chris, her brother, started getting rude with her and told her, and so Bart said, I kind of stepped in and said, hey, you need to calm down a little bit. Maybe you need to go outside, take a break, breathe some fresh air, calm down. You're getting a little worked up about whatever he was talking about, and, and Chris kind of took offense to that and said, well, what are you going to do? Take, are you going to take me outside? You're gonna, is it going to be you that goes out? Are we going to, you want to go outside? Ah, oh, Bart said, no, just calm down and, and just collect yourself. Well, Chris gets upset and says, all right, I, I'm going to go home. And, and so he goes to the door and he stands, he opens the door, he, he turns around and he tells him, he says, tell Sam, Sam is their two, at the point, in 2004, was their two-year-old son. He says, tell Sam I love him. And he walks out into the night they try to get him to come back in. No, 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 just sleep here. No, he said, it's a short drive to my house. I'm going home. A few minutes later, Shannon just says, I don't feel right about sending him home. Will you, will you please go make, make sure he made it home safely? So, so Bart goes out and, and he drives to where, he li- uh, where Chris lives and he's not at home and he drives to a couple of other places and doesn't find his car. So he comes back early now in the morning and, cr- and falls asleep for a few hours and they're awoken at 8 a.m. by Shannon's father who says... Uh, Chris, uh, Chris didn't make it home last night. He died in a car accident. Well, Bart just melts with guilt and, and, and frustration and anger at himself. He's the one that worked Chris up and, and kind of shipped him out. He, he felt responsible for what b- happened to Bart. He, he, he becomes depressed with his own journey, and, and he feels he couldn't take it. Whenever Chris's name was brought up, he just, the guilt was unbearable, he writes. It was unbearable. Well, later that year, Bart is out attending the American Music Awards. Mercy Me has been nominated to receive the Favorite Contemporary Inspirational Artist Award, and they win it. They actually win it. So he calls Shannon on the phone. Uh, He says, hey, we won the award. And she says, as if she hadn't even heard what he said. The most prestigious award they had won. As if she hadn't even heard what he said. She said, something is wrong with Sam. He jumps on a plane. He gets home. His in-laws are, meet him at the house. He jumps in the car with his wife and Sam, and they take him to the children's hospital. A series of tests discover that he has, in the words of Bart, an incurable illness. And it's true, but, it, but for him, that was the, what stuck, the incurable illness. He had juvenile diabetes. But the part for Bart He's living on the guilt of, of, his, of his brother-in-law's death. And then his son is given an incurable illness. And he said that began the experience of pricking and prodding him and testing him. And in that first week, he's poking his son with the needle. And his two-year-old son, Sam, looks into his dad's eyes and says, Daddy, fix it. And, and Bart lost it. He said, I can't fix it. He begins to melt down all over again as the weight and guilt of not only his brother-in-law, but now his own son. He can't fix his own son, and his boy is there begging him. And he said, it's the worst. There's nothing in life more difficult than to hear your little boy say, Daddy, please fix it. And you can't do anything. Then weeks later, his father-in-law goes in and finds out through a CT scan that there's a grapefruit-sized tumor on his brain. And they have to prepare their goodbyes 
He said, that's on top of the fact that I was still struggling internally from the, way, the abusive way I was raised as a, as a boy. He said, I was still seeing a counselor working through what I had experienced. He said, I couldn't wash dishes in my own house because every time I washed dishes, I would replay the time my father broke a dish over my head as a boy. I couldn't sit at the table with my family for supper because I could just remember as a boy being told I couldn't get up until every last bite was finished. And there was times I sat up to six hours. He's working through the internal and then the external. So he goes to the doctor. He's now weighing 370 pounds. His blood pressure and his cholesterol are high. He's developed type 2 diabetes. He has sleep apnea. And the doctor tells him, oh, that's not all of your problems. You're, you're in the beginning stages of congestive heart failure. Bart says in 2004, having been at the pinnacle of a career, having people, and he says if you had attended one of his concerts, during, Mercy Me's concerts, during that time, you would never know that his world was in shambles and that he was hurting. God gave him Psalm 139. It became a turning point about knowing who God is and his grace. He says, my identity had to be bound up in that God, not my band, not my profession, not my education, not my family, not anything else. My identity had to be established in what I knew of God. He said, so mercy me, scaled back our, our tour schedule. We cut it in half, in fact, to be able to spend some time getting to know God again. And I want to put the final words of his book on the screen for you. This is Bart's testimony. Put it on the screen. He says, I am living proof that he, God, can carry you through anything. And if this is the journey I had to take to truly know Jesus and understand who I am because of his grace, then I wouldn't change a thing. Could it be the journey that God has taken you on, the place you are in life? God is doing everything possible to get you, your attention so that your identity, who you are as a faith-based person, as a Christian, as a church, as a school, as an organization in this community, he will lead us through whatever it takes so that our identity, our purpose, our meaning are all bound up in God, in who we know God to be. Ah, it means something when we get to know God. It starts here. We get to know him now. Pick up that book, Steps to Christ. Let me know if you don't have it. I'll get it for you. But as we get to know God again, Bart's lines come back to my mind. When we know God, we will one day see God. Eternity begins here, right now. We don't have to wait. We start now, but one day we will see him face to face. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by his side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when his face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, he sings, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah, or will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. The God of heaven, the one that supersedes culture and context, wants to know you. He wants to know you in the now. And it's available. One day, after having met him here, we will see this God face to face. I can only imagine what it will be like. I'd like to invite our worship team up to lead us in this theme song. Following the music and the postlude, I would invite you to grab some refreshments and engage with our guests, our community leaders.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Until again we meet in worship. Amen.